Thank you, Jacob, for uh, helping lead us in our uh, worship and singing this morning. And thank you, Noah, for playing Silent Night with us as well. Uh, I, I enjoy Noah because I get to rub elbows with him periodically. Um, we have a Greek class on uh, Tuesday nights from 8 to 9. And Bentley told me one time, Dylan wanted, I mean, Noah wanted to come. I said, bring that boy with you. So he does come periodically uh, to uh, Greek class and will sit over there and write and draw pictures for me and point out what, what they're supposed to represent uh, afterwards. Um, and then last week I mentioned uh, just, you know, we all have disobeyed our parents, haven't we? And so Bentley was sitting in the back and all three of his kids shot up their arms straight in the air for yes, we have. <laughs> so you're doing a good job of teaching them about sin. Keep teaching about the gospel, the good, good news, and we pray that God will strike the heart and do what only he can do and bring true regeneration. We're in our study of the gospel of Matthew. Again, it goes narrative. We're leading uh down towards Passion Week, and then it'll be interjected. Matthew's pattern seems to be one of, okay, then he'll give us a big block of teaching or discourse. And we saw that in 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And they always end this way, and after Jesus had finished saying these things, and then we'll move into more narrative. We did that. We came down to chapter 10, which was more discourse or a block of teaching there for the original 12 disciples when he sent them out. But it also goes beyond them. There's instruction for us. And then it would end this way. And after Jesus had finished saying these things, it would move into more narrative. And then we came down and finished the section in chapter 13 on the parables of Jesus, particularly the first one is so important. Jesus told his disciples, if you don't understand this one, you're not gonna understand anything that the soils really represent the conditions of different hearts. And then we began at the end of 13 with the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth. And that's gonna run us way down until chapters 24 and 25. There's a very lengthy section here, and it does have teaching in it, but we don't see that transition uh, quite the same way. So we looked at Jesus was rejected by his hometown, probably a small town, no more than 200 people. Everybody knew everyone else, and when he came back and he taught in the synagogue, and they're listening to him. And when he was done, it says all the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened upon Jesus. But they, they did an evaluation. Hey, we know his family. 
We know his brothers. We know his sisters. Can this really be the Messiah when Jesus said this scripture is fulfilled today in your ears? And they rejected him. Tried to take him out to the cliff and throw him over the cliff, and he just passed right through their midst. So this morning we have a rejection of a different nature. And it's going to be rejection by not only Herod Antipas, he's not called Antipas in the New Testament, that's from Josephus, um, and the Herodian dynasty and the rejection of his forerunner. So there's three themes that are really tied together, and Matthew and Mark at this point parallel each other quite uh, closely. And so there's, there's a tremendous amount of application in this section. It'll start with the guilty conscience of Herod. Then it'll be a flashback to probably at least a year past uh, Honer and his wonderful work, Herod Antipas, and he puts it around uh, somewhere 31 uh, A.D. when this took place. So we're a year perhaps beyond that. And then we'll finally end up, Lord willing, in Mark, and we will see how Mark places this very carefully contextually and shows the solidarity of Jesus, John, and the disciples. So Lord willing, we will, we will see these three themes are all tied together. Lord, you're the true teacher. It's your book. You authored it. You, you gave us God-breathed scripture. We have so many different words we try and describe it when it's attacked, inerrant, infallible. Every word is pure from heaven. We have a God who does not lie, cannot lie, and has given us truth from heaven. But we are resistant by nature to truth. We are so easily deceived by our own hearts that take circumstances, situations, our own desires as more important than you. So this morning we pray that the true teacher, the Spirit of God, would be merciful and gracious to us, bring illumination, bring regeneration where it is needed, Help us not merely to understand this passage intellectually, but to breathe the very air of this text spiritually that we imbibe it into our lives. Make us not mere hearers of the word. Make us doers of the word. To that end, we pray and we study in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin this morning of those three themes and talk about conscience, first of all. 
It's been called the soul's automatic warning system. Everybody has a conscience. Now, God, when he created us, he gave us a conscience. It's the innate, God-given ability to sense right and wrong. Conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right, and it restrains us from doing what is wrong. Conscience accuses us when we violate it, and it excuses or defends us when we follow it. Perhaps the classic text in all of the scripture is Romans 2, 14 to 15. The Gentiles who do not have the law demonstrate the work of the law written on their hearts. Their conscience testifies, bears witness about their thoughts, condemning or excusing these thoughts. So it always starts with the mind, the way you think. When we talk about the heart, Old Testament, or we were talking about the Hebrew Scriptures or the New Testament in terms of Greek. When we talk about the heart, it's still the same. It's just a different word, lave in Hebrew, cardia in Greek, and it means this. We've gone over this. It's your mind. It's your will. It's your motives, and it's your emotions that result from there. But we could also say some would include the conscience as an aspect of your heart, and it is. It's the way you think. But it is a God-given gift to direct us. Nobody has to have the Mosaic law to know that murder is wrong. Nobody has to have the Mosaic law to know that lying is wrong, that cheating is wrong, that deceiving other people is wrong. Dishonoring your parents is, is wrong. Coveting is wrong. This is, this is something that God has given us as a warning system. And so when we do those things and we sin against God, the conscience smites us. And we're challenged. What am I going to do about that? And if we keep on doing it over and over again, it's like an alarm system that keeps getting weaker and weaker. And pretty soon, our conscience is described as in the New Testament. It's cauterized. It's like you take a hot branding and iron to the conscience and you don't hear it as much anymore. In the New Testament, the word conscience, says the Greek word, sunetesis, it, it means two things. One is knowing and soon together. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, rightly describes conscience as the soul reflecting on itself. And in the Hebrew scriptures, conscience, you won't really find a separate word for conscience. It's just the word for heart. And it emphasizes uh, that aspect. We can harden, harden our conscience, but you can never make your conscience go away. It's always there. 
And sometimes events will come about that prick our conscience, that remind us of how we violated God's standards. Remember Joseph's brothers when they came to Joseph? Remember what they did to him? And they threw him in the pit and rather than murder him and went back and lied to their father and showed his, his coat with the blood on it. And so they're thinking Joseph is gone. We're never going to be found out. And then the famine comes. And they have to finally appear before Joseph. And they're down before him. And the text says, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. After all those years, their conscience was being pricked and burst wide open, and at last they confess their sin and guilt. Remember in John chapter 8, and they brought a woman caught in adultery? we should ask, where was the man? And so they, they brought her and Jesus drew something and he says, okay, you who are without sin cast the first stone. And then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one. I've used this illustration before of Sigmund Freud, Jewish, and when he was dying, the nurse that was taking care of him, he had rejected God and had an explanation for all, all kind of uh, the way we do uh, things uh, He had mouth cancer. Very painful, corrective surgeries hadn't taken care of. And the person that was taking care of him at his end said, Freud said, this is a guy who denied the existence of God. He came back and said, maybe God is punishing me for all those things I said about him. We have a conscience. You may harden it. You may refuse to respond to it, but it is God's alarm system to wake us up and see that something is wrong or else when we are wrongly accused, our consciences defend us. When we violate conscience, it condemns us, producing feelings of guilt, shame, anguish, mental and emotional pain, regret, disgrace, anxiety, and even fear. These are good things. We're told that they're not good things. No, this is to wake us up that there's something wrong. And when we follow conscience, it commends us, tells us we have done what is right, producing joy, shalom, self-respect, and honor. And what's the answer for a guilty conscience in the Bible? It's confession, repentance, and the blood of Christ in Hebrews 9.14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, 
cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you're here this morning and your conscience bothers you, there's an answer. There's an answer found in the work of Jesus Christ and the provision there to turn to him, to trust him. And for those who are already believers, there's also an answer when our conscience bothers us. Go back, go back. Be quick to repent and ask God for forgiveness. The standard for a conscience Conscience is not equal to the law of God. Conscience is this gift from God that tells us things are either right or wrong and convicts us. But the standard for the conscience is this book right here. It's to have everyone have your conscience bound to Scripture. And so the more we know of Scripture, the more we run the Word of God through our minds the better trained our consciences are going to be before God. And that's so that we would discern by constant practice to discern good from evil. So we take this book. It makes us wise for salvation. And then what does it do? It rebukes us, corrects us, trains us for practical righteousness so that we might be complete thoroughly furnished for every good work. So that's the first aspect. And we're going to look at a guilty conscience in Herod Antipas. Now, I'm going to shift from that to the second theme. And I think it's, it, it's, it's so confusing. If you ever re, have ever read Josephus on this and tried to put all the Herods together, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Try it some night when you can't sleep. Go, I'm going to pull out Josephus, the antiquities of the Jews, and try and figure out all of this. So here they are. I know it's in small print, but uh, we're, gonna, we're going to, I'm going to start first of all with the Hasmonean uh, dynasty. Now, they were the ones in... I'm going to look out here and see if I put you to sleep. So I'm going to try and do this brief because I'm not going to go through all of this. I just want you to see at the top that, first of all, there was a Hasmonean uh, dynasty. It's also known as the Maccabean dynasty, or Maccabean Matthias, the hammer. And so they broke free from the Seleucid Empire. They were reigning, and uh, along came what is called Herod the Great. Now, for Orthodox Jewish people, they didn't think he was so great. Um, but he's generally in history called Herod the Great because of the things they did, his buildings and all of those types of things. Now, the first line down here, over here, those are his wives. Now, he wasn't a polygamist, he, he, he would, um, and, and sometimes um, he, he would just, uh, using Chicago terminology, just knock one of them off. And I don't want that one anymore. And as a matter of fact, one of his favorite wives, who he said was absolutely beauty, beautiful, Mariamna I, and her son through, with Herod the Great was Aristobulus. But they had some Hasmonean blood 
in them, and he was afraid they were going to overthrow him. So you know what he did? So it wasn't so good to be his wife or his son. Um, we're, we're in the New Testament, there are five Herods. And so it's a little easy, easier when you come down. There's Herod the Great, who was the great uh, ruler. Um, and he had help. Uh, he was an Edomian, meaning he was an Edomite. He wasn't a true Jew. He was a descendant of Esau. And with the help of the Romans, I won't go through all what happened, he, he uh, usurped the previous Hasmonean dynasty that had ruled from the time of the Maccabees. Herod was a very cruel man with a hard heart. And with the aid of the Roman imperial army, uh, he enforced his will and he tried to maintain the Pax Romana, which under him, I think, was neither Roman nor Pax peace. But Herod the Great was a prolific builder. Uh, what did Herod the Great uh, accomplish? Um, he not only consolidated Roman rule, um, Herod's uh, uh, palace there in Jerusalem, the expansion on the Temple Mount was all by Herod. Some of us have been there to uh, Masada and that palace fortress, uh, that was Herod. Machaerus that we're going to go take a look at in a little bit was also on the other side in what is now Jordan, on the other side of the Dead Sea, uh, overlooking the Dead Sea. Um, he was responsible uh, for that. Caesarea Maritima up there on the coast. So he, he was a very ambitious uh, builder. Appointed ruler over Palestine by the Roman Senate uh, in 40 B.C. Now, sometimes... For myself, growing up in a single-parent home and things weren't always... Uh, my mother took great care of us. I never knew my father, never met him. Um, and sometimes I'd think, why don't I have two parents? Why has this happened to me? Couldn't I have better parents? It's a failure to understand the divine providence of God that he gave me the parents exactly whom he wanted for me and eventually brought along the gospel to my path. But let me tell you something. You would not want to be related to one of the Herods. You could say, oh, if only I had Herod the Great for my father. He's very wealthy and power and esteem. Well, he may be off with your head. Too. He was a really cruel man, rejected the truth that he heard. He was the ruler at the birth of Jesus. He tried to kill the infant Jesus. He murdered the male children in Bethlehem. And at his death, his kingdom was divided among several of his sons at 4 BC. Now, Antipas, the uh, one that we're going to look at under uh, this morning in the text, Herod Antipas, he is the one that um, executed uh, John 
the Baptist, his blood brother from the same mother was Harold Archelaus. He reigned over Judea when his father died. Remember when, when uh, Joseph and Mary came back from Egypt and they, they came back and they go, oh, we don't want to stay here. Archelaus is now ruling. He's the same uh, kind of cloth that his father was in. And then you have uh, um, Herod Archelaus was so noted for his cruelty, he was deposed in 6 AD, and one of the Roman procurators was assigned his place. You know who that was? That was Pilate. That's why you didn't have him. And then Herod Antipas, he's also called Herod the Tetrarch, um, and he ruled over Galilee and Perea. And why this is so important is because he's the ruler up there during the Galilean ministry when Jesus is doing all of uh, the miracles. And then you have Herod Agrippa I, who killed the apostle James. Remember him a little later in that same chapter in Acts, he came out and he's going to read a great oration and he sat on the Bema. The Bema means his judgment seat. He's out there and, you know, all the people, you, you want to flatter this guy. And so he's out there giving, oh, the voice of a God and not of a man. And they're all, um, you know, trying to ingratiate themselves with them. And the text uses a word that doesn't mean uh, later on. Sometimes the text will use a word immediately or at once, and it means maybe down the road a little bit. But the word that it used there in Acts, he was saying this, and at once, at that very moment, an angel of the Lord struck him, and he died. You want to read about his death being eaten by worms? It's a terrible way uh, to die. So, and then you have Herod Agrippa II, who there in Acts uh, 26, when Paul was giving his appeal, and uh, uh, he said, uh, I, I know that you believe the prophets. I know that you do. And so he was kind of put on the spot, and so he came back and... and uh, uh, he said, um, "Oh, Paul, do you think you're gonna? Uh, you think you're gonna persuade me to be a Christian? I think that's a good way to read the question there. And then there's also a sixth Herod uh, that I think it's the Philip in Mark six seventeen and trying to put that and Josephus all together. Since you're still awake, I'm not gonna go there." And, and we'll stop with all these Herods. Now, hopefully, as we get into the text, you'll see why I tried to spell these things out because it'd be very important as we come back and what was happening here uh, at, at this time. So here's the Herodian dynasty. You start out with Herod the Great, and I'm just mentioning three of his wives, Miriamna II, Malthace was a Samaritan. Now, you think that didn't... Uh, get Jewish people excited in the wrong way. <laughs> Herod the Great is, is an Edomite and he marries a Samaritan. Man, they hated that woman. And then you have Cleopatra. This is not the Egyptian Cleopatra. This is a Cleopatra of Jerusalem. And so what happens? What, what happened? Go back to David, King David. 
He was a polygamist. How did that work out with them for all those wives? When you have children of different wives and they're not believers, what happens? Well, they all want the throne. And so that's why a lot of this happens. Now, notice from Herod the Great, you go to Miriam II, and she has a son, Herod Philip, who has Mary's Herodias, who was actually a granddaughter of Herod the Great. And she has a daughter, Salome. So, Herod the Great through Malthus has a son, two sons, Herod Antipas and Archelaus. So Herod Antipas marries the daughter of Aratas. Who was she? Well, she was a Nabataean princess. And who was her father? King Aratas. Where was he from? Oh, just uh, down the road a little ways. Some of you have been there. It's called Petra, was the capital of his kingdom. And so he'll later come in and make uh, Herod Antipas pay a price for what he, he did to uh, his, his daughter in disgracing him. So all of this is important. Herodias, who had married Philip, leaves Philip, and Herod Antipas marries her. This all took over in, in Rome, and she brings her daughter Salome with her. Now, if you understood this chart, you would see that actually... Herodias marries her uncle. And she cans that uncle to marry, get a better deal with a different uncle, and she brings her daughter, Salome, along. Now, here comes John the Baptist onto the scene. And he doesn't say, oh, blessing upon you. He doesn't even call Herodias the legitimate wife of Herod Antipas. He says, that's your brother's wife that you took. And they're both still alive. I can imagine just the, the, the friction there. And so can you imagine John? And, and we don't know how, how uh, he first did that. Was he out in the open or was uh, Herod Antipas in his palace and wanted to hear John? He goes, hey, come in, work a miracle for me. You know how many miracles John did? Zero, zip. But, um, and so he heard him preaching, and then he's preaching against his marriage. It's not lawful. What you and Herodias have done is not right. I imagine that led to some bedtime chatter when they were getting ready to go to bed in the palace, and she would go, would you shut that guy up, that prophet? Because that's exactly what happened. And, uh, um, he's, and he wanted to. Now remember, back up a year, this is why, while John the Baptist is still very popular with the people. By the time we get down to chapter 11, the tone is turning because then in that chapter it said people were saying John has a demon. So if I thoroughly confuse you, Hang on, we're going to go to the text, and I hope this all falls into place. So here we go. Um, let's turn over. I'm, I'm going to go to Mark, and we'll probably come back to Matthew. Since we read Matthew, turn over to the parallel in Mark chapter 6. So 
So we're going to pick up in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Well, what is, what is Mark connected to? He connects it that uh, Jesus has sent out the disciples and saw all these miracles are happening. And you say, well, he never saw it. Well, he may have been down there in Machaerus, uh, his palace fortress where he spent uh, a lot of time. And uh, so Mark clues us in. Some said that Jesus is John the Baptist. Now, there, there's a term. It's a, it's a Latin term, but it comes across in English. It's re de vivus. So, vivus means alive or living and re again. So, some were saying uh, it's, it's a popular uh, view at that time that John has come back from the dead. Um, and, and you may say, well, that, where, where did that come from? Well, there were, have you ever heard Ray Stevens? You know who he is? Some of you may be too young and you go, Ray Stevens, who's he? Um, but he sang, he, he had a song, I saw Elvis in a UFO. Some of you may have heard that. Some of you may have not, but people would say, I, I saw Elvis, I saw Elvis. You know, we went to Israel and we went to that one restaurant and we walk in there and I look at a cup and they give us a, 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 a cup for buying your coffee there. And what does it have on the cup? Elvis in Hebrew. I go, wow. Well, this is no uh, a joke for them. This was their superstition. They, they believed in what's called uh, Nero Redewewus, that Nero had actually died and come back to life. So there's a popular superstition that people would do that. And if they're your enemy, you're in big trouble. So I can only imagine what Herod thought if he really thought this was uh, John uh, the Baptist. So we see here in the text, some said uh, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. This has to be supernatural. Others said he is Elijah. Now, why would they say he's Elijah? And by the way, there were, when we come down to Herodias and look at her in a little bit, the whole Elijah, Jezebel, Ahab, I think that's intentionally in the background why a lot of these details are in, in the text and uh, they, they would say, uh, he's Elijah. Look at all the supernatural miracles that Elijah uh, did. Remember, we went up to Zarephath and the widow there and uh, the oil that didn't stop running and the flour, etc. cetera. Um, others said uh, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old, namely one of the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. But when Herod heard of it, Ah, what does he say? It's very emphatic in the Greek text. John, whom I, I cut off his head. That's who this is. That's who Jesus is. Now, it's, it's, it's uh, faulty theology. Do you know how, how important theology is? Biblical theology. You, you get nothing but truth here. 
You don't get lies. You don't get deceptions. You get nothing but absolute truth. And it is our responsibility to read, to understand, and to believe the truth and to bring our minds, our wills, into subjection to the truth. Because when we do that, we are bringing ourselves into subjection to God himself. But Herod was really troubled. I can imagine he had some frightening times trying to go to sleep to thinking that, that that's John the Baptist, whom he cut, is he gonna come after me? What's he doing with all these miracles out there? And now we're going to have the flashback to what took place at least a year prior to that. When we begin, I'm not going to go back there, when we begin in the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and Jesus, it says, and after John was arrested and put into prison, then Jesus began his Galilean ministry. So John has been there for probably two years at, at this time. Um, let me go to uh, his imprisonment in Machaerus. Now, the uh, New Testament does not tell us where he was imprisoned at. This is from Josephus, and it seems to be, to me, to be a credible uh, account. Uh, Machaerus, a, a machaira in, in Greek is a sword, a particular kind of sword. And so that's what, it, it was a, a uh, palace there with a dungeon at the bottom. So we're going over here to Machaerus on the other side of Israel to the Dead Sea and um, show you some pictures of it. Here, here it is. It's a huge uh, mountain. Now that I look back, we went to Jordan. I go, why didn't we go over and see that thing? Why don't we go down to, uh, uh, yeah, a few other places. I wouldn't want to go over there right now. I, I'm going to hold off on that. Probably not real wise right now. But uh, visitors can go there, and it, it's overlooking uh, the Dead Sea. You can see the Dead Sea off in uh, uh, the background there. And why this is such an important place is because armies or enemies that are coming from uh, the east and heading west, now you have... Uh, a great fortress and a great defense there. Uh, here's what remains of it uh, because um, after the destruction in A.D. 70 of Jerusalem and just like some of the Jews fled up there on Masada, so some fled over to this and took it over in a Jewish revolt and the Romans came in and wiped them out and tore the place down. So it's just nothing but ruins today. Um, there's another view of it. I, I found this uh, helpful in terms of the excavations to see just how large this place was. I mean, it was huge. And then here is one uh, published in Biblical Archaeology Review. Not everything in there. Um, read it with a grain of salt, to say, or two grains of salt. But this is one... Uh, that uh, someone did some reconstruction and probably it looks something like this. Um, well, 
ah, here it is. This, this cutaway reconstruction of the uh, Herodian palace at Machaerus shows the splendor of the Dead Sea. And Herod the Great added luxurious renovations. He had a courtyard, a garden, a Roman-style bath, a triclinium for dining, a peristyle courtyard. And uh, so this is, and down below it was a dungeon. And guess who got put in there? Yeah, John. And uh, so this kind of, um, why imprisonment? At Machaerus. Well, let's go back to the text. I'm going to pick it up in Mark, still in Mark, chapter 6, verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, namely, namely it doesn't call him, Herod Antipas's wife, but there's brothers Philip White. Now, you have to remember, she is a niece, and they're both uncles. So if long and short, she got a better deal with one than the other one. The one was Philip was disinherited, and so they were in Rome, and he, she said yes, and he became infatuated with her, and she said, I'll marry you if you get rid of your other wife. So he did. So the two uh, of them... Uh, uh, came back, and John kept saying, this isn't right, this isn't right, isn't right, and she's gone to her husband. Would you get rid of that noisy prophet for me? I mean, can't you do something about him? Come on, Herod, what are you, a wimp? And, and um, but, but Herod, his conscience even then, wasn't quite like his father, Herod the Great. It bothered him. He knew that John was a just and a holy man. And John had been saying to Herod, verse 18, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Why? For Herod feared John. As a matter of fact, he not only feared John, he feared his wife, he feared the people, he's, he feared the Roman emperor, and as a matter of fact, he had a good reason to fear the Roman emperor because later on, um, you know, if you don't stay in good graces with the Roman emperor, what's going to happen to you? Usually you get executed, but in this case, Caligula and he oh, um, went, went to the emperor and told some things about Herod Antipas, and eventually both Herod Antipas and Herodias got exiled to Lyon, Gaul, which would, would, which would be France. Let, let me just pause for a minute. Parents, you got children still in the home. You got children out of the home. You still got a responsibility to them. Teach them the truth of God's word. Teach it to them. Practice it. Model the truth in front of them. And pray that God would do what only God can do. You can't bring regeneration. I can't bring regeneration. I can't save myself. Only God can. So we point them to him and ask God to do those things. I, I look at, at what took place um, with Herod the Great and all the consequences of, of the Herods, if you're sitting 
in, in this auditorium this morning, many of you have believed the truth, know the truth, keep teaching the truth, praying for your offspring, praying for others. Look, we have a God in heaven that hears and answers answers prayer. When they steer off course, you keep praying for them. You keep praying for them. Well, there, uh, there, there's nothing here. Herod hasn't, Antipas hasn't embraced the truth. He's rejected it. He has superstitious views about who Jesus is. And his wife has an incredible hatred uh, for him. going to skip Ahab and Omri. Um, you know, Ahab married Jezebel. One of the worst decisions that that man made was marrying Jezebel. And Ahab was weak. Jezebel was strong. You see a lot of parallels right here between Herod Antipas and uh, Herodias. So the opportunity came here, and I call it carpe diem. It's a Latin phrase. If, you, if you've seen uh, a, a movie based upon that, it, it means seize the day, seize the opportunity, take it now. And so Herod's birthday came. Now, we celebrate birthdays. Um, we, we enjoy them. We enjoy uh, going down to our grandkids and watching them uh, open presents in the first one. You know, they they took off the, when they were one year old. Um, Cable and Mallory gave them a cake and stripped them down to the diaper and just handed it to them and goes, "Go for it, man!" They got stuff all over, all over this. We enjoy those kind of celebrations. If if you really look at the first century, it's totally different. Generally, Gentiles and pagans celebrated birthdays and they did it with usually a wild drinking party sexual immorality so who who celebrates Herod's birthday he does <laughs> he's the one and he, he invites all the Kiliarchs his Roman commanders if if you're the who's who in Galilee among his officials you get an in, invite and they all uh, come in there would be frequently excessive drinking, erotic dancing, sexual immorality were common. As a matter of fact, Herodes Dies, it means Her the birthday of Herod, it later became an epithet for immoral uh, festivals. Now, watch, it doesn't say in the text who asked Salome, remember, this is his wife's daughter, by a different marriage. So she comes in, and we read, verse 21, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet. That, that, it's, it was more than a banquet here. For his nobles and military commanders, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Now, who asked her to come in? 
the text doesn't tell us. But if you jump down to verse 24 and 25, she immediately goes out and asks her mother, for what should I ask? So it seems to be the implication, it's not stated in the text why she came in, but her mother sent her in. Now, there's a word down later on in verse 28 that describes her, and it's used the word korasion, the girl. Now, uh, that particularly, uh, particular Greek word usually refers to a girl early uh, teenage years. Maybe she was 12 to 14. So let me ask you, you, you men, you, you have daughters. Are you going to ask your daughter in, in front of these, if not drunk, half drunk, military commanders to come in and dance before them? And believe me, this is not ballet on tiptoes that we're talking about here. And so they're out there, and all of a sudden she comes in, and she starts dancing. Now, the word here for dance does not necessarily imply um, sexual immorality, but when you look at the Herods and the whole history, this is not a good thing. And so they're all there getting sloshed, and uh, finally he is so pleased, and people are are uh, applauding. Wow, look look, look! what we just saw. And so, like he's a Persian monarch, he says, um, ask me whatever you wish up to half of my kingdom, and I'll give it to you. Now, notice, she goes out immediately. And that's why I think the text implies she was sent out by her mother. And she goes, and she goes out, and she goes, and she doesn't like her stepfather either. Her mother has poisoned her against Herodias, I mean against Herod. And so she goes out, Mama, what should I do? And, and the text says immediately, at once, go out and ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now what are they, what are they serving on? Platters. And so comes out, gives that request, Verse 25, she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, the king was grieved. It doesn't mean he repented. He's sorry at the consequences of what he did because of his oath and his guests, and so he didn't want to break his word. Now, I think this also uh, parallels with why it was out there in Machaerus because immediately he goes down apparently into the dungeon, and the word here is for an executioner, and he sends him down at once, off with his head, and comes back. Can you imagine all the dinner guests now? That might sober up a few of them. And you walk in with like a dinner plate, and you got the head of John the Baptist on it? And he brings it in, and he hands it to the girl. So uh, there's some hardened conscience there. And she goes in, and she hands it to her mother. Well, there you are. There you are. The weak vacillation of Herod, the execution of Achaerus, presentation of John's head on a platter, and then this account is capped, 
capped off, and his disciples heard of it. Now, remember, they had access to John previously because when John wondered, um, did I have the wrong one? Is this the coming one? How come judgment isn't falling right now? And he sent his disciples back to ask Jesus, and Jesus said, go back and tell John. Remember what he told him to tell him? The blind see, the deaf hear, demons are cast out just like it said in the Old Testament scriptures. So his disciples came, and they took away his body, and they laid it in a tomb. Now, while we're still in Mark, this, these are called bookends or sandwich effect. Look at the beginning in Mark 6, 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, And verse 12, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Here's what they did. Now, why take this event of of the execution of John the Baptist and stick it right in the middle of this account? Because look, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is not an accident. This is a literary feature by John. He says, okay, he sent them out, and they came back. And they gave out the message. And Mark inserts into this the prior execution of John the Baptist. Now, what does that mean? First bookend, the message got preached. Second bookend, they came back. They did exactly what they were going to do. The message got preached. And Mark inserts right in the middle. No, no. No, the death of John the Baptist did not stop the message. It didn't stop the message. And you follow right down to the cross of Christ. A couple of quick applications. The, the opposition here, first at Nazareth, now a different kind of opposition at Makera with the rejection of the forerunner, and there's, there's a connection between Jesus and John, the forerunner. In other words, it's almost like a foreshadowing. If you think John was beheaded, what's going to happen to Jesus down the road? Secondly, conscience. Conscience. Everyone in here has one. Everyone in here probably has heard conscience condemning us at times for doing things wrong. It's reflecting on itself. It's an alarm system. Have your conscience trained by Scripture. You know what Scripture says? This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the living God. And your relationship to him will determine your eternal future, your eternal destiny. A billion years from now, you will either be right with God because you trusted Jesus Christ, or you'll be separate from him forever. So today, now is the appointed time. What's the answer for a guilty conscience? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Turn to him. Believe upon him. He'll put all that under the blood, and you'll be right with him. And third, there is a solidarity of Jesus, John, and the disciples of Jesus It's already 12. I'm just going to say reread Matthew 10, Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 1, Philippians 3. We are not only called to believe upon him, but we're also called to suffer 
on behalf of him because the sufferings of this present age aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that's one day going to be revealed to us. So I'm going to ask the, the young ladies, and they're going to come and uh, do a Hallelujah Christmas in conclusion. And if you have never heard Hallelujah Christmas, be very careful, watch the words on the screen, and ask yourself, is this what you believe? Is your conscience bound to this? Ladies. <laughs> 